0: of the modern self is that the modern self is a plastic self. A plastic self. I don't mean like made out of polypropylene. Um, I'm using this word in the sense of how we talk about the plasticity of the brain, if any of you are in medicine. Um, uh, Plasticity is a word that relates to sort of malleability, right? The ability to to change. What, What we're getting at here is that in the modern world, The assumption is that human beings do not have a fixed and given human nature. That there's no objective reality to what it means to be a human person, but rather that you are free to sort of define yourself without any reference to the nature of what it means to be a human being. All right, so let's do a little bit of uh, simple philosophy to help you understand why this is really critical. in our thinking about the self and why it creates some pretty significant challenges for discipleship. Uh, Aristotle differentiated between essence, the essence of a thing, and what he called accident, which which means features of a thing that are accidental, meaning they could be different. They don't have to exist that way. Okay, so as an example, let's use like this stool right here. Okay, Aristotle would say, hey, I'm about to drop some books. Okay, so the essence of this, the essence of a stool is it has three or four legs. It's made for sitting on. There are things that, that participate in its stoolness that if it didn't have that, it wouldn't be a stool, right? Like if this didn't look kind of like this, it wouldn't be a stool. There are, there are features of this that make it what we know as a stool rather than a piano, right? Uh, rather than an airplane, However, there are also things about this that have nothing to do with it being a stool. The fact that this one looks to be made out of pine has no bearing on the fact that it's a stool. It could just as well be made out of cherry or alderwood or plastic or uh, some kind of composite. It would still be a stool, right? The fact that it has a varnish on it and that it is a certain color is an accident. It's not essential to its stoolness. It's, it's, it could change. This could be red. It could be blue. It could be green. It could be orange. It would still be a stool. So you catch the difference? Some things are essential to its it's essence, and other things are accidental. They could, they could be different, and it would still be the same. So the same is true of you. There are certain things that are essential to your being, to what it means to be human. There are other things that they could change, uh, and it wouldn't change the, the essential nature of who you are. So essence, the nature of a thing, is authoritative. It makes demands upon us. If, if we went outside and we tried to play a game of catch with this stool, we would quickly realize that's not what a stool is made for. And it doesn't work very well in a game of baseball, right? Like if we were trying to use this as a bat to play some wiffle ball outside, we'd quickly realize, well, it's kind of like a bat, like it's a long wooden thing, but it doesn't work very well to hit with because it's not made to do that. It's, It's not part of what the essence of a stool is made for. So essence makes demands upon us. There's ways in which... Essence determines what a thing is made for and what it exists in the world to do. Um, here's another example that Alistair McIntyre uses. He says, um, Let's ask a question like, Is this a good watch? I don't have a watch on, but he says, How would we answer the question, Is this a good watch? Well, the question is, What is a watch made to do? The answer would be, Does it tell time accurately? Or in our day and age, can I get my text messages on it? Or so whatever, whatever it might be, right? Whatever the criteria of a good watch is, what we look to that to do would determine whether this is a good watch or a bad watch. A good watch would be one that tells time accurately or that looks nice on my wrist or that compliments my wardrobe or whatever. A bad watch would be one that is always wrong or I can't depend on it or the battery always dies or it always, Siri always asks me, what did you say? I can't understand you, right? The watch isn't working the way a good watch would work. Um, McIntyre says, for all of human history, we've been able to apply that same category to human beings. We've been able to say, is this person a good person? And because person is a concept that connects to some essence, we actually could answer that question. Yes, this is a good person. No, this person isn't a good person. Why? Because they don't, they aren't, Fulfilling what a person is made to fulfill. Okay, What's happened in the modern world is that we've done away with the idea of human nature. We've done away with the idea that human beings have a fixed and given essence. And that has all kinds of implications in the modern world. Let me show you what... um, Does this thing have another side? Oh, sweet. I can do two things at once. All right. So I'm going to show you what Alistair McIntyre observed about ethics, okay? He says in the classical view of ethics, um, you have man as he should be. And obviously I'm using man in the general sense here, okay? Man or woman as he should be. And then you have man as he is, right? Whoever you are right now. And the goal of ethics is to move you from the person that you are to the person that you should be. And the whole point of moral rules or principles or uh, any kind of laws in society are to help you move from who you are to the person you should be. Okay, This is what we called in philosophy teleology. The Greek word telos just means the end of something or the goal of something or the aim of something or the purpose of something. And what we've always believed about human beings is that We are born into this world a certain way. We come into the world as a human being, and there's there's something human beings should be. There's a kind of person we ought to be, and we have morality as a way of moving us from the people that we are to the people we should be. It it helps if you apply this in the most simplistic way possible, right? Take a a toddler, some of you guys have two-year-olds or three-year-olds. And man as he is at age two or three is highly selfish, highly bratty, highly deterministic of the fact that the whole world should revolve around him, right? And what you want to do with that child is train them, educate them, discipline them, so that by the time they leave your house, they are less bratty, less selfish, able to exist in a world where they don't always get their way, and in fact, able to meaningfully relate to other people without just using them for their own selfish ends, right? So this makes sense to all of us because this is basic human development, okay? Now, what Alistair MacIntyre says is, here's what happened during the Enlightenment. If you dial the clock back to Rene Descartes and the philosophers who worked in the early Enlightenment, here's what they tried to do. They tried to do away with this. They tried to say, hey, we don't believe that there is any... End or goal for humanity because we're not convinced there is a God. We're not convinced there is an afterlife. We're not convinced there's a new heavens and a new earth. We're not convinced there's any end toward which history is moving. So, because we've kind of thrown out the idea of God and being made in the image of God, we don't believe there's any telos. There's not any end goal for humans. We just have who we are, and we do need some moral rules for getting along in the world. And so, what they tried to do was to do ethics. Without teleology. To do moral rules and principles by which we should live life without any sense of there being an end or a purpose for human beings to achieve. Um. That was about a 300-year project in philosophy. There was various philosophers who took stabs at, uh, here's what I think we should do. I think we should think about ethics in this way. And then another philosopher would come along and say, no, 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 that way doesn't work. Let's try to think about ethics in this way. And then another philosopher would come along and say, no, no, that system doesn't quite work either. Here's the problems with it. Here's another system that would work better, that would work differently, that would work um, in a more sufficient way. And Alistair MacIntyre, who, uh, by the way, is, I think, the most eminent philosopher of the late 20th century. So he's He's well-known in all academic circles as a wise, noble, and uh, hefty philosopher. His judgment is that project failed entirely. Um, and, and the person who finally said that was Frederick Nietzsche. Um, if you, any of you are familiar with Nietzsche, if you've studied philosophy, what he came along and said is, hey, all you dummy Enlightenment philosophers, if you're going to do away with teleology, guess what else you just did away with? Ethics. Because you can't tell me what I ought to do if there's nothing I'm made for, if there's no end purpose or goal to which we're moving. All your rules are just a will to power. They're just a way of you expressing your dominance over me, and I'm not putting up with that. So he called the bluff on all of philosophy and said, "If if God is dead, then guess what else is dead? Any kind of morality, any kind of rules any kind of ethic, the only thing that's left is power. So all ethics, all rules, all sense of you should live this way, or you should be this kind of person, or we should follow these rules for getting along in society, none of those can be justified as anything other than what he called a will to power. It's you expressing your will over me because you're in a position of power. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Sound like everything you've heard on social media for the last three years? Right? We live now in a Nietzschean world where any statement about what should be is understood by someone to be, oh, that's just what you say because you're in authority and you're in power and you got to make the rules. And guess what? Now we need you to get out of power so that I can get in power so that I can make different rules because your rules suck. That's the argument we're having in the modern world. Okay? There's a reason, there's a background for why that whole argument exists. Okay, So now to go back to this side of the board, sorry for hitting your beautiful, beautiful uh, backdrop. Um, when we say that modern self is a plastic self, that's what we mean. We mean we live in a world where we no longer agree that there is such a thing as a fixed, given human nature that exists for some purpose in the world. And so all we have left is just arguing about rules and ethics and morality and what's good for people and what's not good for people. And all of that is up for debate because there's no givenness to a human being. There's no sense that a human being is something and is not something. To go back to our stool analogy, there's no sense of what is the essence of a human versus what is accidental to being human, okay? Um, So, you can think about how this affects um, all of our thinking about gender right now, right? The, The whole conversation about gender in our society is everything about your identity as a human being, as a sex and gender person in the world, is plastic. There's no givens there. You're free to change it all, readjust it all, identify it all however you want. There are no categories that are fixed and by which you must abide. You're free to change all of it. That applies... Not just to gender and biology, which seemed to be a very given, foundational, natural sort of thing, but to every aspect of how you see the world, how you envision yourself, how you interpret your own identity in the world. Everything about you is plastic. Now, I'm not saying it actually is. I'm saying this is the modern view of the self. Is that there's nothing about me that is fixed, given, and that adheres in my nature as a human being. So to say it theologically, we could say it this way. If we throw out the idea that we are made in the image of God, we've done away with teleology. We don't live in a world where we can say, see, perhaps three or 400 years ago, you could have said, I don't believe that we're made in the image of God, but I still believe that we're something. I don't know what that is yet. It's not the image of God. We're tired of you Christians telling us we're made in the image of God. But there's something fixed and given about our humanity. Where the last 300 years of philosophy have gotten us is that it's really clear that if we throw out that there is an essential given human nature that we exist in because we are human beings in a world created in the image of God, suddenly there's nothing else to anchor us to anything objective and grounding. Okay. So, same question we've asked before. What are some of the implications of this view of the self for Christian discipleship? All right, have that conversation for three or four minutes, and then let's talk about it together. All right, let's talk about it together for a few minutes. What are some of the implications of this for Christian discipleship that you guys have identified? Okay, good. So he said there's less and less common ground between Christians and unbelievers as as more of these things are up for debate. So that has implications for how we pursue discipleship, right? Um, we're probably not walking into a conversation with our neighbor, assuming there's a ton of common ground. Rather, we realize we're talking to them about an, an, sort of an alternate life and an alternate way of seeing reality that's going to feel really foreign to them. Okay, what else? Good, so this has implications for how do we view any kind of authority, right? the authority of a father, the authority of a church, the authority of theology or of the scriptures, it's, it's, there's a sense in which I'm going to have this flinch toward any kind of authority because it's going to feel like, oh, this is just your way of imposing power, right? Because that's how, how our, our culture relates to authority, yeah? Yeah, good. <laughs> sin makes no sense. We're going to need to build out why sin is a thing, right? Right? Right. Everything has become an expression of preference. That's your personal taste in the matter. What else? Um, An implication of what the two of you just said is um, I will have a tendency to relate to any moral imperative as a demand that's imposed from outside of myself So think about how I relate to the law of God. Like I'm a new Christian, I just come to faith, I actually believe the gospel, I want to begin to walk in uh, the ways of Christ, but if this is the, the view of self I'm coming in with, when you teach on the Ten Commandments, all I hear is a God who wants to tell me what to do. I don't hear a God who actually made human nature and knows the best way to be human and is trying to lead me into flourishing. So you're going to have to explain that to me and help me see that that's what God's rules are. Otherwise, I'm just going to relate to them as some imposed demand of like, well, I guess this God has authority over me now and he gets to tell me what to do. Which, even if I believe that he has authority over me, still creates struggles for me in actually embracing that authority as good. Right? What else? Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. So this leads can lead to a certain kind of accommodation that causes me to prioritize my relationship with the person as the definitive thing, rather than the Spirit of God and the gospel as the thing that's actually going to compel them to any kind of meaningful change. That's good. That's good. What else? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yes, Any? yeah, this has implications for how our society relates to the authority of the family. Uh, you as a parent don't have a right to impose your worldview on your child. They have to figure it out for themselves, right? Um, so yeah, there's, we're going to be swimming upstream as people who believe that we actually should impart a meaningful vision of life to our children. And who believe that human beings have an essential nature, okay? Okay. Um, now, I want you to believe here that um, God actually has given us um, meaningful help here, meaning that though the world believes there is no givens and there's no essential nature to humanity, actually there is. Right? There is such a thing as given human nature, and that works in our favor because what it means is, right. think about how the Apostle Paul reasons at the beginning of Romans. Right, What he reasons is, Everybody knows there's a God. They just suppress the truth. Why do you know there's a God? Because it's, it's written into your being. You're conscious that there is a creator who you are accountable to. That's still true, and it's true because you're made in the image of God. So there's still something working in our favor here, which is you can't deny human nature and have life work well for you, okay? Okay. Um, and, and this is a place where we can lean into natural law and the way that God has made the world and just trusting that God knows what he's talking about and that we're working with the grain of the universe as we try to disciple people into the givenness of their nature, okay? So as you, in your own world and your own families and with the people around you, are having conversations especially about categories of sexuality and gender, it's okay for you to lean into the fact that men are men and women are women, and that that's a given. That's not up for debate and change. That doesn't mean we don't live in a society that believes it's up for debate and change. It just means when we try to work against those things, it doesn't work very well. There are real, serious consequences to going against those things, and the Bible's always told us that. But we live in a world where that's as unwelcome a message as it has ever been.